Good morning once again. Today we're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I trust you have your Bibles with you. Uh, keep bringing those Bibles. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're going through a series called Highway 27. And simply all that means is that uh, we're taking a look at all of the 27 books of the New Testament, one at a time. And this morning we're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians. As I was uh, reading the book and just kind of saying, God, what do you want me to focus on? This whole concept of Christ's return, uh, which is found more in the end of the book, but also is uh, connected throughout as a theme, was something that just kept coming back to me. So I thought, well, let's have some fun with this, because sometimes you know the rapture and all that stuff can be really, really heavy. So I wanted to have a little bit more fun. So there's a neat little website called Reverend Fun, and what they do is they do these little caricature cartoon things. So I'm going to show you a couple of those over the course of the sermon, but this was one specifically that I like. Today's lecture, The Rapture. And as you can see, he's sitting in the class all by himself, and all of his friends are looking on, thinking, gee, I wonder if he's going to think he missed it. When I saw this cartoon, well, we're slow this morning. <laughs> when I saw this cartoon, it actually reminded me uh, of a story that I experienced uh, when I was a camp counselor. I worked for Circle Square Ranch, and um, I, I was a BMX instructor, ran a racing school there, but I also did like cabin counseling as well. And one week I was in this cabin and my LIT, leader in training, uh, who was there, I realized very quickly this LIT wasn't even a Christian. And I thought, how did you get past the interview process? Like, you're supposed to be here as my assistant to help me minister to these other younger kids, and, and you're not even a believer. So I thought, well, God, this is who you've given me, so I'll just kind of run with it and see what happens. So the week was going on, and, and I've got one rule when I'm a cabin counselor. Well, I have a few, but the one main rule anyways but is that we can stay up as late as you want on one condition, and that is you have to talk about God or spiritual things. Because you know how it is. Kids stay up all night and they talk about everything but. But I'm saying, no, this is a Christian camp, and the reason we're here is we want to learn more about God. So if you're going to stay up late, we have to talk about God. So the one night we stayed up, must have been 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. It was pretty late, and we're talking about all kinds of uh, theological questions. And it was really neat, actually. The kids just had so many questions, and as we give answers, they would ask more questions, and even as LIT's asking all these questions and stuff, and inevitably, we got onto the topic of the second coming of Christ, or the rapture. And we talked about how Christ would come, and all of those who were Christians would be taken up with Jesus, and those who weren't Christians would be left behind, they would miss it, uh, and they would suffer the wrath of God, and all this kind of nice bedtime stuff that you want to think about right before you go to sleep. Anyways, after this conversation, things kind of fizzled out, the kids fell asleep, and uh, the next morning we wake up, and breakfast was 8 o'clock, so it's probably about quarter to 8, and I'm getting all the kids out of bed, and I'm trying to wake this LIT up, and I cannot wake him up no matter what. He's just like dead to the world. So I said to the kids, I said, well, just leave him there. Let's just go have breakfast. Can you see what happened next? Right? We're in, we're in the, the dining hall, and this LIT wakes up, and he looks around in the room, and there's nobody there. Not a soul. And all you see is like stuff strewn all over the place. It's a boy's cabin, right? All over the place. And messy, you know, sleeping bags half open and stuff. And he thinks he's missed it. He thinks the rapture has happened and he's missed it. And he is scared to death because he realizes if I have missed it, I'm, my destiny is, is here. I'm doomed. And so he kind of gathers himself together, gets dressed, and he comes, you know, he decides to look around, see if there's anybody else around. Any other heathens that he can find, like himself. <laughs> and he comes into the dining hall, and as he comes into the dining hall, he realizes we're all sitting there. 
And I see him at the door. And he is as white as a ghost. But as he's standing there, slowly a grin comes over his face. And he comes over to me and he says, I thought I missed it. And I said, missed what? Like, breakfast started ten minutes ago. There's still stuff. No, I thought I missed the rapture. And he explained this to me. And he said, I need to accept God into my heart. He says, I don't want to, I don't want to miss when Christ does come. I don't want to miss it. And I don't want to be here all by myself. He says, can you help me do that? And so I was able to lead him through the passages of Scripture, which just help him to make a commitment to Christ and begin his spiritual journey. And it was an incredible opportunity to use the return of Christ as a catalyst to say, look, this is something that's really going to happen. And it's something that we need to live our lives in the light of. And that's really what Paul is talking about throughout Thessalonians. He's saying, Jesus Christ is returning. And how you live now matters to His return. And we should always live our life with the fact that He is coming back and that that is an important issue with His return. So take your Bibles out and open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have Bibles or didn't bring your Bible with you, put up your hand and the ushers will make sure that you get a Bible. The Bibles that we're giving you, if you don't own a Bible, you may keep it. But if you own one and perhaps you just forgot it this morning, then you can give it back. And I would just, I just encourage you, continue to bring your Bibles throughout this series. There is nothing more important than you studying the Scripture your own personal Bible and knowing where to find stuff. So 1 Thessalonians. Let me give you a little bit of an overview first. Thessalonia, sorry, Thessalonica was a prominent seaport in the um, Roman province of Macedonia. It was also located on a main road that went from Rome and then traveled through towards the east. So it was kind of one of those... Thessalonians. Like is right up here. It's kind of one of those really key cities, kind of like New York City. It was, it was a main entry point. It was on the water. It was on a main road. And so it, it, it had quite a bit of influence within the area around it. Now, Paul wrote uh, this book to the Thessalonians while he was in Corinth. And it was written while he was on his second missionary journey. And scholars believe it was written probably somewhere around AD 51. Uh, and it was probably one of the first letters that he wrote as well. So that gives us a little bit of background. And you can see Again, this is the country of Greece, and this is Turkey. Uh, so that's the area where we find Thessalonica, just so you have that picture in your mind. But in order to help you understand what the key theme is of Thessalonians, we have our cartoon of the week. Here it is. What do you see up there? Thistle, onions, Thessalonians, right? Got that part? Okay, so that's the, the name of the book, Thistle Onions. And what, is the, what are the thistle and the onion trying to do? I'm, I'm hearing it. Come on, speak up. What are they? Where are they? They're on target. And what are they trying to do? Stay on target. Right. So that's the theme of 1 Thessalonians. And there's one thistle, one onion. It's 1 Thessalonians. Next week you'll see two thistles, two onions. There's a little preview. Just because I know you're excited about next week as well. The main theme of 1 Thessalonians is staying on target. Paul has said, look, you as a church have been a model church and you've done well throughout this time ministering around, but continue to stay on target. And as we'll see, the transition verse in the middle of Thessalonians is, now do so even more and more. So 1 Thessalonians, stay on target. And the book is divided basically into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 3. And these chapters really... Uh, outline Paul's thankfulness and praise for the Thessalonian church. You'll see that in each chapter, he's just thanking them for their faithfulness, for their influence, for their continued perseverance through difficult times. 
Uh, and he kind of reminisces a bit and, and uh, just provides them some encouragement too. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first part. I'm going to spend more time on the second part, which is chapters 4 and 5. And this is Paul's exhortation to holy living. He's saying, just as you've been doing, do so more and more. Live in a holy life. But it's always in the light of the return of Christ. And when I take a look at this, we'll kind of subdivide these and, and pull them apart each in their own session. Now, one interesting thing that I want to point out is in chapters 1 to 3, the last verse in each chapter, Paul usually concludes whatever he's talking about in, and he says something to the effect of, you are doing this until Christ returns or we continue to do this as we wait for the arrival of, of Jesus or those sorts of words. So what that tells us is that continually... Everything Paul's writing, even the thankfulness that he has for the Thessalonian church, is within the context of the return of Christ. The fact that Jesus is coming back, and that's what uh, we need to uh, be focused on. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is where Paul is thanking God, and he's waiting from the sun to heaven. Verse 2 says this, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you skip down to the end of verse 8, he says, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And then down in verse 9, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, Paul is saying, to the Thessalonian church, you guys are a model church. And, and your example is known throughout the province of Macedonia. And I'm so grateful of that. Every time I pray, I thank God for you. And I just want to express my thankfulness to you as I write you this letter because of your faithfulness through this. So that's kind of chapter one. It's a short chapter, but it's an important chapter that begins to set the stage. Chapter two takes a look at Paul's ministry. And he kind of reminisces a little bit and says, hey, when I visited you, this is some of the things that happened. But it's always uh, my ministry to you and the fruit that you bear will be, my, uh, will be the glo my glory when Christ returns. So chapter 2, verse 1, uh, says this, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Skipping down to verse 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And then all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 19, says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Paul says, Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul says, When I came to you and I ministered to you and I, I told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm so thankful because it wasn't a failure. And he says, I was like a father to you, just like a father encourages a child, and I poured myself into you and I saw you grow and develop in character. And he says that growth and that development, the, the model church that you've become, when Jesus returns, that is the crown that I'm going to hold up to Jesus and say, see Jesus, you gave me these talents and here, here is how I've invested it. Here's how they've multiplied. Take a look at the Thessalonian church. It is something that Paul is saying he'll be able to hold up before Christ when he returns because of the faithfulness of the church. It's kind of like a parent. You know when, when you're parenting your children and you get a compliment for uh, your kid's behavior? It probably happens less often than you'd like it, but it's nice when it does happen. I know when I take my sons into the, the nursery, and when I go to pick them up, sometimes, and I emphasize sometimes, uh, the teacher or whoever's there will say, oh, your boys were so well-behaved, sometimes, right? 
And as a dad, when I hear that, it just makes me feel just so good because I know that the time and the energy and the discipline that I've invested into my kids has not just kind of been meaningless, but it's been something that has bore some fruit. And so that's what Paul is saying in chapter 2. I've invested my time into you, and I've seen the fruit of that. And I know Christ will be happy when he returns. 1 Thessalonians 3. Chapter 3, uh, Paul talks about Timothy's ministry and God's strength for when he comes. Verse 1 of uh, chapter 3. says, So when I could, no lo- uh, could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Skipping down to verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. And then all the way down to the end of the chapter again, verse 13, he says, May he, and he's talking about God here, strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. So Paul uh, says earlier on, he says, we wanted to come visit you, but we weren't able to come visit you. So what we decided to do was send Timothy, both, just both to encourage you and to find out how things were doing. And Timothy's come back and has given this great report. And again, Paul is thankful for that. And he just gives them a blessing at the end of this chapter. He says, may God continue to develop you and to strengthen you. So that way, when Jesus comes back with his holy ones, you'll be prepared to meet him. So that's kind of the, the first part of First Thessalonians. That's the setup and and the beginning. But here's the transition verse right here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. And this kind of is where Paul switches gears. Because up until this point, Paul's just basically been saying, hey, look, you've been doing a great job. But now he says this. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Remember, those are all the things he's thanked them for. He says, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. What Paul is saying is, You've done a great job to this point. But he says, now I want you to go the next step. And I wonder how much we as Rexdale would have that kind of verse apply to us. Because this church is incredibly blessed. And the ministry that we're able to be involved in spans not only locally into our community, but it spans around the world globally. And yeah, we've done a great job, but I wonder if Paul was writing to the church in Rexdale if he would say, Now, as you've always done, as you've been so faithful, as you've been a model church, and as I thank God for you day in and day out, now I want to encourage you to go the next step, to worship God even more and more. And I think to an extent, that's what God is calling us to do. As we plant this church in Vaughan, as we continue to send out missionaries from this church and continue to live out the vision that God has for us, we are trying to live out uh, what He's called us to more and more. But sometimes I think we can get too comfortable. And we can say, hey, you know what? We're in a good church. Things are good right now. We can just kind of coast for a bit. We've got a good momentum going. And I think Paul would say, no way. Never coast. Never coast. Always continue moving forward. So that's the transition verse. And now we're going to step into chapters 4 and 5, the return of Christ. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So we're going to take a look at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning of 4 and the end of 5. The reason is, this section is kind of like a sandwich. The middle part of the sandwich, end of 4, beginning of 5, is uh, the return of Christ. And this is where Paul's talking to the Thessalonians about the return of Christ. But the first part of the sandwich, would be the bun on top, so to speak, Paul is exhorting them to live 
out their faith more and more and to live holy lives. But also, in the end of the chapter 5, where he's kind of wrapping up his whole book, again, he exhorts them with three similar themes as in the first section to live this holy life. So we're going to take a look at the return of Christ first, then we're going to take a look at that first and last section together as they relate to those three common themes. So let's take a look at the return of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul says in verse 13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant of those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, when you read a passage like this, the question obviously is, what does he mean about those who fall asleep? Like, are there, you know, people there just can't get out of bed or what's going on? But what has happened, scholars believe, is that some of the people within the Thessalonian church had died. And so this concept of falling asleep really means those who have died or passed away within your midst. And the Thessalonians were really concerned that the people who died would miss out on the return of Christ. Because Paul had talked uh, to them about the return of Christ. And, but their understanding was is that Jesus would return and all of these people in the church at that time would be gathered up to Jesus and, they, and that his kingdom would come and reign on earth. And so they're thinking, if these people have died already, are they going to miss it? Are they going to miss the return of Christ? And this was a big concern for them. And that's why Paul says, don't worry about those who fall asleep. We, I don't want you to be ignorant or not knowledgeable about those because in fact... Christ, when he returns, he's going to take them up first. He says, we have hope. And I want you to be encouraged by these words because there is hope here. And that's where we continue on. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. He says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are still alive and are left with him will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says they're not going to miss it. And you're not going to miss it. They're going to go first. They're going to meet Christ first. And you know what? You get to see them again. At the resurrection, when Christ returns, you get to meet them in the air with Christ. And it will be this big party of those who have gone before us and those who are here now. I can only imagine what it will be like when Jesus comes back in the clouds that all of us here, if we're still alive then, We'll be able to go out, but we'll be able to meet uh, great people of the faith. You know, Peter, Paul, Mark, John, St. Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther, all of these, uh, Wesley, you name it, whoever you can think of, perhaps uh, grandparents or family members or loved ones who you know are with Christ. We'll meet them again when Christ returns. And it will be this huge heavenly party that Christ will initiate. He says, I want you to encourage one another with these words. Don't be down because they've gone before you. Because going before you just means that they get to see Christ sooner. It will be an incredibly spectacular event when Jesus comes with His angels and the trumpet blowing on the clouds and the whole world will see this magnificent uh, joining of God's people together in the sky. Do we long for the return of Jesus? Do we really think with our spiritual minds of how awesome that will be or are we pretty comfortable where we are? I hope, I hope that this begins to paint a picture of what it might be like. But it begs the question when he talks about this, okay, when's this going to happen? Right? A lot of people want to know. It's like, let me put it in my day timer. I want to be able to know exactly when this is going to happen. And Paul continues at the beginning of chapter 5. 
5 verse 111. He says, No one knows the exact time of the hour. Sorry, 5 verse 1. He says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman. But they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So on one hand, Paul says, it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be very unexpected, and all of a sudden, there it is. It's going to be there, and and you're going to have to deal with it. But on the other hand, he's saying, but you're not in darkness that it should come like a thief. It shouldn't surprise you. So how can it come like a thief and be unexpected yet not surprise you? It kind of seems like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth. But he's not, because what he's saying is, is that since you believers understand the things of heaven, there will be some signs and some clues, which we read throughout different passages of Scripture, which will help us understand that that time is near. You know, it's kind of like in a movie. A couple, or last week, uh, Jaws was on TV. And I watched a little bit of it. And, um, you know, when, when the, the shark is coming up, and you know he's coming, because what happens? You hear the music, right? Dun-dum, dun-dum. And you can't see anything. All you see is the water, and the kids, you know, swimming in the water and splashing around, but you're dun-dum. And you're expecting something to happen. And all of a sudden, bang, the shark jumps out of the water, something happens, and it's like, it's almost startling. But you knew the shark was going to eat the guy, right? You, you just knew it was going to happen, but it was still somewhat surprising. I think when Jesus returns, in a, in a sense, it'll be similar. Because, now hopefully the music won't be, dun-dum, dun-dum, but, but it'll be similar in the sense that we will see things. The, the music of heaven, the, the words of Scripture will begin to make sense to us and we'll be able to understand that, hey, Christ is coming back very soon. And we'll know that that's, it, it's going to happen soon. But when it does happen, it still will be a little bit surprising because we, it won't be like, okay, on the fourth beat, here he comes. Here are some kind of funny cartoons that I think help illustrate it as well. Jesus yells down with his angels, Ready or not, here I come. And if we're listening, we'll be ready for it. And we'll be there and we'll be able to hear. If we're in tune with the words of Christ, we'll be able to hear the fact that He's coming again. But if we're not paying attention, and maybe we're kind of set apart and consumed with other things in our life, it might be something like this. He's standing in front of St. Peter. Oh, this was unexpected. Right? What are we going to be doing when Christ returns? Will we be living a holy life and worshiping God with all of our body, with all that we do, and with everything that we are? Or will we be busy doing things to serve our own just whims or needs or whatever? Christ is going to return, and it's important how we act when He does return. But Paul continues on. Verse 5. He says, You are all sons of the light and sons of the day, but we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing The end result is we need to be ready for Christ's return. We need to be alert and we need to be self-controlled. We need to live every single day as if Jesus would come that day, as if that was our last day. 
Because if we're living our life in that way, then we'll always be ready for His return. But what does being ready look like? What does being ready look like? And this is where the, the first and the second part that surround this whole return of, the, of Christ, Paul really kind of unpacks some of this. So I want you to skip back in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 3. There are three main themes here that Paul deals with both in the section before Christ's return and in the section afterwards. And the first theme that he deals with is the theme of God's will, which is an important theme for us as believers. 4, uh, 3 to 5. It says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Okay, so he's saying, if you want to live holy lives, you want to be ready for Christ, then understand that it is God's will for you to do these things. And then turn the page to uh, chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. And he unpacks God's will even a little bit more. Verse 16 says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, all throughout Scripture, God has laid His will out for His people. But most often, when I am am, uh, counseling or talking to people or just in the process of doing pastoral type things, people ask me, Pastor, how do I know what God's will is for my life? And I'm always curious, and this isn't so much a judgment as a question, I'm always curious why, how... How is it that when God gives, lays out His will so, in so much detail throughout Scripture that we still don't know what His will is? Why, why are we always so consumed with what's God's will for my life when God says, look, this is my will. Be sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality. Be joyful. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And a host of other things He lays out. And I came to the, the question of the hypothesis perhaps that Maybe the reason why we don't understand God's more specific will in our life is because we don't take the time to do the things that He's already told us about. And here's the analogy. I'm a carpenter by trade, not licensed, but like I like to build things. I've built a few houses and stuff. And if I was building a house and somebody said to me, look, I want to learn how to build a house. The first thing I would do is i say, okay, well, if you're going to learn to build a house, you need to, to begin, you know, start at the bottom. So I say, what I want you to do is I want you to take these boards here and I want you to just lay them out on the floor and, and move that pile of wood over here because we're going to get ready for the building phase. And so, you know, I'd go off and do a couple of other things. And when I came back, my apprentice, like, hadn't done anything. The pile of wood was still there. Nothing was laid out. Nothing was ready. But he came up to me and he said, look, I really want to build a house. Can you, can you tell me and show me exactly what I need to do so I can build this house with you? What am I going to say to him? I'm going to say, I'm not going to teach you, you know, the more complicated aspects of building a house if you can't even move the two-by-fours from that pile and lay them out on the floor. And I think the same way with God. He says, I'm not going to give you this grand revelation from heaven which outlines in detail your whole life for the rest of your life if you can't even do the simple things that I have laid out in Scripture. Now, it's only a hypothesis and it's only a question, but I think it probably has some truth. And so I would encourage you, go home, Think about it. Pray about it. And say, God, are the things in your word that you have asked me to do that I'm just simply refusing to do? And if so, show me what those are. Give me the courage to do it so that way I can be open to the, the more detailed will that you might have for my life. So I think that's one of the things we first need to take a look at is God's will. The second theme in here, and we've already seen it, but it's this whole idea of sanctification. 
What does that word sanctification mean? So we find sanctification in two sections. First of all, in the beginning part, um, four, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, And he gives some other clues and the rest of the things that are in that verse. But in 5, verse 23, he talks about sanctification a little bit more. But the, the definition for sanctification is to be set apart as holy, to make us free from sin. And in 5.23, it says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. God says, I want you to live a sanctified life. I want you to live holy. I want you to live a life that says you are ready for My coming at any time. To be set apart, to be holy. But here's the good news. The good news is, is you don't have to do it within your own power. Because whose responsibility is it to make sure that you have the strength and that you, have, you are able to be sanctified? It's God's responsibility. Through His Holy Spirit, it says He is faithful and He will do it. See, sanctification is a dual process. And within the Alliance, it's actually a fairly significant portion of our Alliance doctrine, our Alliance distinctive. Sanctification happens when we become children of God. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we begin that journey of faith uh, throughout the rest of our life. We are sanctified positionally. That means that we are made holy in the eyes of God and we become acceptable to enter into His kingdom. But see, we don't become sinless at that point, do we? I know myself, I continue to sin and I continue to do things that I I know I shouldn't do. So sanctification is not only a one-time event, but it's a continual process but it, Scripture says God is faithful to do that. He will continually help you to be able to overcome sin, to live a victorious life, and to continual, continually make you positionally holy so that way you can stand before God on Judgment Day and say, I am clean by the blood of Christ. I'm going to take a little bit of an aside here, and I want to take a closer look at sanctification. Because remember I said it's one of the Alliance distinctives. And you may have noticed the symbol before. This is the symbol of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the denomination that we're a part of. And within the alliance, you've got the cross and the cup and the crown and the pitcher. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, what does that mean? I just, I've seen this before, but I have no clue. And this is where sanctification fits into it. First of all, the cross means that Jesus Christ, we believe in the alliance, and here's, this is the fourfold gospel. It's the foundation of our denomination. We believe that Jesus is our Savior, and that's what the cross represents. Secondly, we believe that Jesus is our sanctifier. Remember the scripture says, He is faithful, He will do it. And the cup represents sanctification. Because in the Old Testament, the priests always used to wash before they would go in and offer the the, the offering. And that washing was, was the cleansing, the being made holy in preparation for entering into the presence of God. So the cup really represents this washing basin, this cleansing, this becoming holy. So Jesus is our sanctifier. The pitcher is for oil. And it's the oil represents the anointing with oil and pray, praying for healing. And that Jesus is our healer. And finally, the crown represents the fact that Jesus is our coming King. The thing that it talks about in Thessalonians is that He will return with great splendor and majesty. And the King will, on the clouds, gather all of His people, His kingdom together. So that's a little bit of an aside. There'll be a test on that next week. So make sure you study that. No, I'm just kidding. I thought it might be interesting though. The, uh, the third thing he takes a look at is the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to, to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but he rejects God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
God is saying, if you reject all of these teachings, the call to be sanctified, the call to obey my will, the call to, to live pure and holy lives, to live in light of the return of Christ, he says, you're not just rejecting you know, some pastor who's standing up and telling you this or something like that, but you're rejecting God Himself. And in fact, when you reject God, you reject His Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who's the, who gives you the power to be able to overcome all of these things and to be sanctified and pure. He says, you throw the whole thing out if you reject these teachings. So he says it's absolutely incredible and, and, that, and vital that you uh, hold on to these teachings. And finally, if you skip to the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 19 to 22, Paul says this. He says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. He says, Test everything, hold on to the good, and avoid every kind of evil. God says, And when I send my Holy Spirit to you to help you live the holy life that I've called you to, He's saying, Don't quench that Spirit. When that Spirit moves within you and you hear people give words from the Lord within your congregation or within your small group or within your Christian experience, don't just write it off as some charismatic hocus-pocus that has nothing to do with today. He's saying don't treat that, those prophecies with contempt because I am still at work within you today. I am still actively speaking through my people to edify the body. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. He's saying don't, don't treat that with contempt. But he says, instead, if there are some things that you don't understand, test them. Test them according to Scripture. Test them. See if they're consistent. And if they are consistent, you know, Scripture says if a prophecy comes to pass and that prophecy was from the Lord, then you'll know that I spoke through that person and that will give you faith and build you up. He says, avoid every kind of evil, but test the things that are good and hold on to them. Probably the most... um, Probably the closest prophetic thing that I've ever had happen to me, which was something I had to test, but through the process of testing has brought me to where I am now, was uh, about eight years ago when I was at Bay Ridge Alliance Church. And I was looking uh, at at kind of finishing up there, but I just didn't know where God was leading me. And we were invited over to somebody's dinner. Some of you might might have heard this story before. We were invited over to this uh, people's place for dinner. And uh, the lady at the table was just really uncomfortable. And I thought, oh, and she said, Pastor Ronder, I have to share something with you. And I thought, oh, no. You know, I was a little nervous. But she said, God gave me a dream last night. Unless I share it with you, I just don't feel like he's going to let me off the hook. Now, this lady is not kind of an ultra-charismatic. She's a very conservative lady. So that kind of captured my attention to begin with. But she said, in the dream, God showed me three things about you. First of all, that you would be leaving our church in June of 97. And that was interesting because she didn't know this, but we had just signed our lease for our house. And the lease ended in June of 97. So that, was, that got my attention. Second thing she said is, you'll be going from Bay Ridge to something uh, quite a bit bigger and with a significantly more, uh, a greater influence, both locally and globally. I thought, okay, that sounds pretty good, but it didn't mean anything to me at the time. And thirdly, she said, the place you'll be going to, the, uh, the, your supervisor or the senior pastor or whoever it is, will be committed to mentoring the younger people underneath his care. And so I just kind of tucked that away into the back of my mind because the first two things, or the first thing caught my attention, the whole lease thing. A little while later, as I was talking to our district superintendent and saying, you know what, I think my time at Bay Ridge is done. I just want to see where God will have me next. And then he forwarded my name to this church and Pastor Sunder called me. And he said, we, we understand you're a youth pastor and you're, you're looking to move to a different church. And he said, we'd like to interview you. But see, before that point, my wife and I had taken the map of Ontario and we had circled all of the churches in southern Ontario except for anything close to Toronto. 
Because I grew up in a small town, and I really wasn't very keen on coming to Toronto. And so when I found out Rexdale was in Toronto, I thought, nah, not too happy. And I kind of almost reeled it off right away. And then God brought back to my mind this dream. Because as I learned about Rexdale, I learned that, first of all, Rexdale was a fairly big church that had an incredible local and global influence. I thought, hmm, part two. And then I found out about Sunder, that he's a man who's committed to mentoring uh, the young uh, men and women underneath his care and to developing them uh, to their full potential in Christ. And all of a sudden, even though I didn't want to come to Toronto, it was very obvious through this prophetic dream that I was able to test through the prophecies coming true that God was calling me here. And I'm glad that I just didn't write it off. I'm glad I didn't say, ah, that's hocus pocus. I don't believe that stuff. Because otherwise, I would have missed out on being here for the last seven and a bit years. I would have missed out on everything that I've learned. I would have missed out on the ministry that I've been privileged to be a part of. And I would have missed out probably on this uh, next step for us going to plant this church in Vaughan. I would have missed it all had I treated it with contempt. And so God says, uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't treat prophecies with contempt. And same with us today. If people have words from the Lord, let's test them, let's embrace them, hold on to the good, and just get rid of those things that don't make sense. Because people will make mistakes, but we have to have uh, enough grace to let them make mistakes. This is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church. And it's a message that applies to us every bit as much today. I want to end with two uh, funny cartoons, just to kind of contextualize it. The good news is, is that when we look at the end of the book, we realize that we win. Right? When you read Revelation, Daniel, Matthew, uh, all these different things, and you realize that when Christ returns and gathers His elect to heaven, we win. We are on the winning side. And I like that. I like winning. I'm very competitive and I like winning. It's a good thing. But the question is, will we be ready for that win? Because Christ is coming soon to a planet near you. Will you be ready for His return? Or will you be more like that other guy in the other cartoon that goes, oh, this was unexpected. I thought I had a few more years to take, you know, get serious about my faith and to start living the way that I need to. I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, take the message of Thessalonians, apply it to your life, and live for God with all of your heart. And you won't regret it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You that You are coming again. I thank You that You have set this plan in motion since the beginning of time. And I thank You that we are part of that plan. Lord, I thank You that You give us Your Holy Spirit to be able to live holy lives, pure and blameless before You, even though we in and of ourselves can never be pure and blameless because we always make mistakes and we will always be sinful. But Father, I pray that as we experience Your purifying love, that You would just give us the strength to strive towards holiness so that way we could be salt and light to those around us. So that way we wouldn't be the only ones being caught up in the clouds with Jesus Christ, but all of those who we know around us would be able to come with us. Lord Jesus, let us live every day in the light of Your return. In Your name we pray. Amen. My benediction for you is simply that as you continue to grow in Christ even more and more, that He who sends His Holy Spirit to fill you with power and with strength, that He would give you the courage and the strength to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. Go in Jesus' name. Tell others about Him so they can meet 
you in the skies when He comes. So in Jesus' name.